Be you a fool or a farseer, forlorn or fortunate, a foundling or a fop. Find your future in fun in our fourth foray into the feelings, focuses, fates, and foundations of our fabled figures on their flittering, fluttering, fluctuating, and fractured face of Father Firma in the fifth season. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Mad Reads. I'm Spencer, and with me are usual BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I'm doing feeling, quite well, Spencer. Feeling fine. Yeah, that was uh, a fancy flight of... Uh, words that you put together you know i try i was looking for various words that could in some way tie into some level of instability while tying it to earth and so flittering fluttering and firma was best about the best i could think of I wanted to keep to a theme of seismic related words throughout our four episode run through the fifth season <laughs> but we are back for what it will be more of a ad hoc exploration of the various questions or key themes that we haven't had a chance to address over the course of our last three episodes um, I've got a few in mind, many of which rotate around a singular, very all-important secondary character. But before we get into that, Sarah, I believe you want to discuss one of the most important topics we go into on our, this show. What are we drinking right now? Well, thank you, Spencer. Um, I wanted to talk about what we're drinking. A, because we actually normally do talk about what we're drinking at the beginning of the podcast or before we record. Anyway, sometime in the beginning of when we start talking to each other. But um, BJ, I was revisiting our first episode on the fifth season and re-remembered, I suppose, that you had a like fifth season related cocktail that you had concocted. Um, I did. And you didn't like it very much. Nope. And <laughs> what did you call it? It was a Taurus something something. I think something, an something. icing Taurus. An icing Taurus. Well, I was thinking about your icing Taurus that you did not like, and I'm sorry that you didn't like it, but I thought it was an excellent idea to have a cocktail that was themed towards the episode. Um, so I have concocted mm. what I am calling a Kirkhuza that I am very excited mm. about. And so I am drinking it now, and it is a, if our readers will remember that a Kirkhuza is um, one of the animals. Bitey. Yeah, one of the, <laughs> that, that was not the <laughs> thing that I latched on for. For this cocktail. <laughs> Seasonally carnivorous otter, essentially, yes, the size of a German the size shepherd. Of a dog. Um, and so my drink that I'm calling a kuza is a mix, a greyhound and a, um, oh, I just forgot what it was called, and an otter pop. Oh, and that, that really tracks. Good. Yes. Yeah. So an otter dog um, in a drink and it's delicious. And I don't know why I had never heard of an otter power. Have either of you heard of this? Do you know about this? Not at all. I, I've not. Okay. It's actually like weirdly close to a greyhound, which is some sort of clear alcohol and grapefruit juice, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so an otter pop has really vodka, which I don't like, um, and grapefruit juice and elderflower liqueur and kefir lime. Um, as well as a little bit of honey or agave. Um, and so I've made that, but I have switched out the vodka for gin, hence the Greyhound, um, which also makes it better. And I was going to say you could add some grapefruit and really make it, uh, which I feel like it would reasonably go. Well, it, I mean, it is grapefruit. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, no, an Otter Pop does have, or at least the one recipe of an Otter Pop that I looked at, um, <laughs> does have grapefruit juice in it. Um, and so mine does have grapefruit, although I upped the grapefruit and upped the gin. Um, and it's good. <laughs> so gotcha. thus the Kirkuza. Actually, Spencer, I feel like you'd like elderflower liqueur. It's um, sweet and cloying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you only use a little bit of it. And and uh, kind of flowery. Well, given that I'm right now drinking Tennessee honey out of what I think is a measure of spite, uh, sure, yeah, I'm down with sweet things. <laughs> 
So anyway, that's what I have to contribute to this conversation. Thank you. uh, For anyone that's curious, we will post that drink recipe on our website with that name. And maybe we'll get something added to the the drink encyclopedia in the future. Absolutely. Uh, I am drinking uh, whatever uh, two tapes was from our whiskey on the weekend, which may (laughs) actually sometime come out. Um, I I don't actually have any control over that, but, uh, supposedly, uh, (laughs) Lee, Terry, uh, whatever his nom de plume of the moment is, uh, Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll put out, uh, whiskey on the weekend and, uh, yeah. So whatever the, the second of the two, of the three, well, of the two whiskeys that we had, the one abomination, (laughs) uh, is what I'm drinking currently. And I still like it. I'm drinking the abomination if anyone's curious. (laughs) It's interesting uh, to me that you both are essentially drinking leftovers at this point. It's there. It literally <laughs> was sitting on the bed next to me when I walked in. It's like, oh, that'll do. Uh, <laughs> a, okay. That's a, uh, that's a decision-making process. <laughs> yes, but did you hear the sentence that he said, Sarah? It was sitting, it was literally sitting next to the bed when I walked in? I thought it was on the bed next to me. On the bed. Oh, on the bed. Uh, yep. We're really getting into the weeds about the mindset or operations that we have when we record these things. But per usual, for when I record these podcasts, I don't sit in a chair. I don't operate. I don't operate out of an office. I just get in a bedroom, squat on a bed, and just lay out various computers and electronics. And so, leftovers from prior podcasts tend to just be sitting in my guest room. So there is a surprisingly large collection of alcohol that is there until guests show up. So I'm also fascinated by the fact that if a guest shows up that like you're not super prepped for, Bridget might have this like, oh, like yeah, you know, go ahead and want you can wander into this bedroom and and they you know put down their, you know their their bags and whatever and take a look at the bed and it's just strewn with like half empty bottles of alcohol. No, That's a welcoming. No, there was, no, there was one point. Where, there was one point recently where we had a member of Bridget's family that was coming over, her uncle, and um, I had, but beforehand, I just, I, I guess from a rare feeling of wanting to be neat, had assembled all the bottles on a, on a table nearby, and so I'd forgotten about it. He walked in and set himself up and came out and said, Spencer, you really didn't need to set up a mini bar for me, but I appreciate the hotel treatment. Uh, yeah, so uh, this isn't whiskey on the weekend, or... Uh... <laughs> Despite the evidence to the contrary. Exactly. So at some point, we should probably uh, start in on, on our book. Um, uh, so fine. we're continuing with our coverage of the fifth season, as Spencer mentioned. And as we have covered the three main perspectives of Demaya, uh, Cyanide, and Esun, one of the uh, recurring characters between Cyanide and Esun is uh, this character, this ten ringer. Uh, Alabaster, who presumably is essentially the most powerful, uh, at least most powerful still living, origin, and he has a couple of stories that he tells. Um, he's the one that retells the uh, Shimshena uh, story from a different perspective. He's the one that sort of clues us in about the season of the teeth being... Uh, a foray into cannibalism from the Sunset Empire uh, and a couple of other things and so he's a fairly interesting character and we get a lot of tidbits about him some of which don't completely maybe line up per se um, at least in my mind Um, and we did discuss it a little bit 
um, and his character a little bit in uh, Cyanite's arc because he was essentially her constant companion um, and maybe the source of some of her discomfort. Um, but but yeah, I think he's the character that we're going to talk about for a little bit and then maybe we'll try and cover at least some of the other questions of what on earth is going on in this book. Um, and I definitely want to cover at least a couple of them before we uh, bid a, a fond, fond farewell to this uh, foray in the fifth season and the Broken Earth trilogy. Yeah, and I think that kind of talking about Alabaster will allow us to um, kind of send some feelers fondly out into the finale, final episode of our... <laughs> <laughs> okay, Spencer, you've created monsters. And, um... Well, Sarah, as you said, I think you I think you summarized it very well when you put it that way. That of all the characters in this book, Alabaster is far and away the most opaque. Mm-hmm. Of where he is integral to some of the perspectives our characters develop over the course of the story. He follows one character's arc near entirely, and not we necessarily know it for certainty. He opens and ends the book. Focused around setting the environment that our, that our characters are operating in and setting about the end of the world as we know it. So he's very, very important. He's very all, all, all-encompassing and key part of so many arcs. But who he is and what he is about and what he believes and whether those beliefs are accurate or real or properly motivated are all fun questions to ponder because I don't think the book ever really gives you any certain answers to them. Hey, Spencer, I have one question mm-hmm. for you before we continue. Mm. Do you feel fine? <laughs> fine <laughs> i mean you out you were talking about the end of the world as we know it so i feel like it was a question that needed to be asked i appreciate it it's always nice to tie back to what was that early 90s music now at this point oh. how long how old is that song at least early 90s yeah right. going back <laughs> to this pop, story our, our pop culture references are both dated and inaccurate so <laughs> we're really doing well here <laughs> All right. So, where do we want to start in discussing Alabaster? So maybe we can actually start um, because I feel like he was he was threaded through so many of our earlier conversations, um, and kind of just when he popped up. But maybe we can start before we get into the questions that we have by kind of recapping what we know about Alistair, or Alabaster. I'm sorry. Huh. Um, so like, Alistair. what? Yeah. Yep. What What do we know about who he is and what his exes are and what he does? So we know he's oh. a ten ringer. Mm-hmm. Um, we know he's not the only Ten Ringer because, um, and this is sort of the, one of the stories I wanted to talk about, is he had a mentor that, um, I guess in, in Spencer's very definition of the word, uh, mentored him. Um, more, and, more of an ancient Greek definition at that point to a certain degree, but go on. Yeah. Uh, and, and so he, one of the only uh, personal relationships that he enjoyed up until uh, maybe a later arc, or at least one of the ones that that he vaguely talks about is, um, I believe it was a previous Ten Ringer that taught him a lot about um, orogeny, and Mm -hmm. that's not intended, but maybe it was uh, N.K. Jemisin's intention, um, was also, I believe, his lover and a romantic companion. And I sort of wonder if that was another sort of weird blurred line that sort of ended up happening that was um, intentional by the fulcrum, but he sort of vaguely uh, alludes to this being the only happy relationship that he ha- has had. Um, mm-hmm. And that's... How, how old 
How old do we think he is when this relationship is going on? Oh, when yeah. This, See, oh, when that, that relationship that, that is was going one on? of my um, questions. Yeah. Because he, he very he sets it up as being like very the happiest relationship in his life that it's been, and he tells uh, Sinai that it's been so long since he's had a relationship like that. And I think we talked about previously that we thought his age was probably what, what were we thinking? Sometime well, trying to remember what he said sometime in like mid. Like late 50s or late 40s, early 50s, somewhere in his 50s, I think. But, but that's yeah. at during his interactions with Cyanite, like that right. arc, not as soon. Right. But it's one of those, um, I, I interpreted the relationship as being in kind of in, in like his early teens or maybe maybe a little bit, maybe similar to the age of Cyanite, maybe in his early 20s. But I wasn't sure what you guys thought. I would have said, I would have said very young. Um I mean, not like young, well, not like young, young. I would have said in his teens. Um, mm-hmm. Partially because one of, one of the other things that we know is that he grew up in the fulcrum um, yeah. for his entire life. And, like, things just get weird in the fulcrum, too, right? Like, time is different. Power relations are different. And, you know, by, by all accounts of what he says, this was a very positive relationship for him. But, like, you know, it still has an aspect of, like, a little bit of, predatory weirdness about it um so my understanding was that he was he was young it's certainly got an imbalance of power nothing else it's a a person he's been assigned to to be a teacher to be follow him around to learn from him to form a relationship under those terms under our world would be very much objectionable but for him in the twisted and very isolated world of the fulcrum it's seemingly one of the few moments of happiness he's had in his life (laughs) over a period of decades before meeting cyanide Mm -hmm. And it's something that was also, if I remember the story correctly, was very much taken away from him um, before he'd established any, you know, completion of it in its own natural course. Wasn't their relationship purposely separated by the fulcrum itself? So I think it was, but I have a couple of questions there, um, mm-hmm. which is, and, and a couple of things that, you know, I want to get your thoughts on. I believe it was separated by the fulcrum. And so do you guys think that it was separated by the fulcrum because of the romantic side of it, the they're not producing offspring side of it, or the this mentor was somebody who kind of opened his eyes to we're super powerful, but we're essentially slaves and the like a little bit of insight into the craziness that is the Guardians, um, because I believe his mentor was killed by mm-hmm. a Guardian by yeah. basically the guardian touching him and him and his mentor exploding. Yeah. So I my impression um I would say that it's the really the first and third of those options um simply because you know the first and third of those that it's a romantic relationship and that you know there is potentially some sort of like subversive knowledge being passed between this very close close relationship um, are both kind of undercutting, specifically undercutting um, the fulcrum's authority and loyalty loyalty to the fulcrum. Um, mm-hmm. So but, actually, I was gonna say like I I read it slightly differently before, um, and I wanted to get your two cents in before we we moved on. Is do you think that all of the mentor mentee relationships are like I get I guess I got a sense that most of the like assignment relationships were all sexual yeah i don't know well, we, because we 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 have two as a we, we have data, two, as data points <laughs> but like i feel like there was some of that like some of that overtone in like 
the assignment just like conversation mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. like it it didn't matter that it was alabaster per se it was this is what's going to happen and i i guess i got the sense that the gender didn't really matter and i still have this like concept that um the origins are mostly female and i probably just need to get rid of that <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I mean, yes. we see so we see so few, like relatively few of them actually in the world. Um, right. mm-hmm. Although it did seem, and I'm trying to remember back to um, Demaya's chapter when, the grits, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, when she was a grit and she was a handful and, of boys. Yeah, and it was difficult to kind of suss out. It seemed like it seemed like the kind of group that she was dealing with was maybe half and half, but I don't. You, it's hard to tell. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing um, that's uh, in support of your theory there, BJ, about the these mentorship relationships being built around that, I think we can kind of bring out of uh, Cyanide's conversation with that kind of mid-level manager at the Fulcrum. I forget her name. Mm-hmm. That first woman oh, that Felds- assigns her to Alabama. Feldspar. Feldspar. Mm-hmm. You're right. Good, good, good draw there. <laughs> Don't um, know what synapse that came from, but you can have that one for free. But, but in the conversation she has with her, there's a decided undercurrent of... Feldspar has done this countless times before, Mm -hmm. that this having of children, this going through these assignments, these missions where you're assigned to somebody else, is the nature of advancement for at least particularly women in this organization. That this will be the first of many times you go through this cycle. So it seems like at least for women, or at least in the the, the world that Feldspar is painting for her about what the future of advancement is in the fulcrum, this kind of mentorship as being a cover for going on mention going on missions and having a baby before the mission is over seems to be the norm at least for a substantial portion of the fulcrum attend, uh, members well and yeah. i think it gets and maybe this is a minor point that doesn't really matter but i i think it gets even a little bit more um oh i don't know what the adjective would be but it gets a little bit more complicated than that too mm-hmm. even in that same vein fiddly. because what fiddly Fiddly. It is, it is fiddly. Because my impression from the fraught conversation that Feldspar and, and Cyanite um, have in that room when we're first introduced to, to Cyanite is that um, they're both well aware that what the fulcrum wants them as women, particularly as women of a certain level of power, although it's a little sure. unclear that Feldspar is ever going to get more powerful than she is now, um, mm-hmm. that what they, what the, what the fulcrum wants them to do is to produce children. Um, and yes, maybe these missions are kind of a cover for that or something like that. But my impression from their conversation is that actually like what Feldspar is telling Cyanite is if you just have the children like they want, that is a prescribed period of time where you are doing what they have told you to do and you can just be left alone to mm. pursue Good your point. own passions or missions or whatever, right? You have this kind of nine-month period where you are specifically doing what they have told you to do, and then you get a little leeway on either side um, that you are not under the pressure to right. produce. I mean, they're, li- they're literally outside of the fulcrum in a way they're never pre- never otherwise allowed. Yeah, and they're, I mean, they're allowed to go then in other ways outside the fulcrum too, or at least do other things um, without this pressure of like, why are you not producing a ch- child right now? Mm-hmm. Now, presumably 
we don't we, we see so much of the story of the, of the inner workings of the fulcrum through the eyes of women. So I, I almost wonder how different the experience would be for men. We see it through Alabaster. I think he's our only real line of sight into it of where, at least for him, he has his own breeding obligations as well. Mm-hmm. It's to father children with whatever women they put before him with no questions asked and him uniquely because of his position as a ten ranker has you a right to refuse that apparently no one else does. So it seems like the opposite side of the fence applies from male members of the Fulcrum too. Uh, and at least in Alabaster's case, he certainly finds it no more pleasant than Cyanide or Feldspar have. But we yeah, also and- get so little insight well we we get so little insight into alabaster himself but he's also so far from like the norm of um you know we get this huge description when we are first going to meet him with cyanide of kind of how removed his apartment is and like he gets the privacy Mm -hmm. that nobody else gets and so he becomes kind of the the foil really to the everyday experience of living of living in the fulcrum but he does so so this is the one of the frustrations that i had maybe with his character or just um and and we did sort of bring up the kinsey scale at some point and i think we touched on this but i i wanted to touch on it again which is he sort of mentions that like you know in the beginning when they were throwing women at him um he was like he thought that they wanted him and he was sort of more going along with it um and i guess i i i wonder if that was really early on Mm mm-hmm um and so this mentor coming in maybe like mid to late teens after you know he basically had some very predatory uh relationships with adult women as a very young teenager because they're like well we need these genes um if we want our minority report-esque node maintainers um Mm -hmm. and so instead of having a normal like uh transition into adulthood he basically was in a predatory sexual relationships to to garner children and Mm -hmm. that's sort of what has changed hit made it so that he's less inclined towards women but like somewhat clearly not totally i mean i think it's been I think it's an accurate statement that nothing about Alabaster has ever been allowed to be normal from day one. The fact that he's been born the fulcrum, the fact that his sole healthy relationship has been this kind of mentorship with an with an with an older uh, professor. I that would then, not go that far. Spencer. <laughs> I, I'm using the terms that they use in the book rather than what I actually feel like there. Um, okay. Um, then to see that person that he. I would say loved, yes. probably more mm-hmm. than he's loved anyone in the past. Maybe still happy uh, relationship. Um, to be taken off to be murdered, possibly as a result of that relationship, possibly as a result of some level of defiance of the Fulcrum's procedures and plot for them, and then to be run through the rigmarole for most of his life of a never-ending series of relationships that he cannot reject up until he's reached his ten-ringer level, which I presume it took him at least a while to reach. Um... This has never been an opportunity to grow up a healthy, independent, or in any way on his own. Um, And I can imagine no small amount of resentment that has resulted from that that we see in the alabaster of today. And so, okay, so can I ask a question? When we first meet alabaster, he has come back, he is like literally just returned from another mission, um, which is part of the reason that he's so out of sorts in their whole first interaction. Um, 
When you are essentially a mentee, when you are a higher level level or origin um, in the fulcrum and you are going out on missions, is is every mission laden with this sort of like take um, or I'm sorry, when you are a mentor, take a mentee with you and try to get them pregnant or get pregnant by them, I guess, if you're a woman. Like, is that always the case on these missions? Because like that also might explain a little bit of his like discomfiture with the fact that like another woman has shown up at his door immediately yeah. after he got back. But like, I don't know if that's always wrapped up with each other or not. I don't know. It, it seems like it would just be way easier for the fulcrum to be like, all right, well, we have a super big building with lots of empty rooms. Um, how about you guys like live over there for a couple of weeks while you take care of, uh, you know, billing that you need to catch up on or some other <laughs> administrative tasks and um you know if she's still having her period like you get to live there for another like month or two and I, like I, I guess it's it just seems like a weird way to go about it to like send them out on not particularly safe travel mm-hmm. to to do to essentially have sex a handful of times yeah. um and i guess then if it weren't the case like why would Sinai just be like all right well let's get this party started um it, it, the the way they're acting they're acting almost like that them having this relationship them using this mentorship is a necessary fiction for them to have this relationship but we're not given any other reason to believe that's actually necessary mm-hmm. i mean we 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 have no reason to believe that they're required to be chased when they're in the fulcrum um, if anything, the fulcrum seems to encourage relations between fellow origins to make new make make new origin babies. So I, I don't really know why they feel the need to send them to give them this mentorship relationship to operate as the necessary fiction for them to have their uh, other relationship and then send them out into the world while they do it outside the fulcrum's eyes. I. I I've never, I never really understood why they went through that whole process. When, as you said, they could have just locked him in a room until something happened. And maybe that actually has something to do with cyanite, because I think that, like, I mean, I think that it's clear even from her conversations with Feldspar that, like, she is recognized by the fulcrum as having a great amount of potential um, mm-hmm. as an origin. So. Okay, do either of you have any sort of sense of, like, how many fulcrum or fulcrum origins there are? No, I really don't. Uh, it's actually a question on my list I was going to ask you guys. Cause I don't think they really ever gave us a clear idea of even how big the uh, fulcrum itself is to accommodate them. I mean, they do um, give a little bit of a sense of the seems size. Pretty big. Yeah, it seems pretty big. Well, the space um, seems big, but a lot of it, as we get from Demaya's kind of wanderings at some point, like, a lot of it's empty at that point. True. Right. But so it's like cohorts of 10 to 15, I think. Okay. But clearly some of those get Yeah, or 10 got. to 20. Yeah, but like, yeah. but not all of them. So I'd no, say like true. probably 10-ish, you know, 10 to 15 remain per cohort. And the cohorts come in, I think, year by year. And so I would say at least in the hundreds, if not thousands, because... That seems you know, like so they're, many to me. Yeah, but, but if, if they're living lives that seem to be about on par, you know, they live 50, 60, 70 years old, at mm-hmm. least, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. Yeah. And they have, you know, about 10 to 20 per year. 
and maybe it's dwindling, but like, you know, let's say 10 per year regularly, then then they can't have that much less. Yeah. No, I guess, I guess that's true. I just, you know, it's hard because like you get, I guess, I guess where my question really comes from is not so much like from what we see of the fulcrum itself, but how much of a rarity they seem to be when cyanite and um, alabaster go out on their mission. And maybe that's because they're going so far um, Mm -hmm. away from the fulcrum, but. Okay, so let's put it this way. Um, Let's say that everybody that had a doctoral degree wore a hat or a collar or something like that. Mm -hmm. How far away from the triangle do you think you'd have to get before people were just like, what the fuck is that? That's weird. Who are you? And in the triangle, they're just like, oh, well, that's just somebody who has a doctorate. Okay. that That is a fair point. Um, Mm -hmm. I understand your point now. Also, did you all know that the, sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent, but did you all know that the Triangle region is the second highest density of um, PhDs in the country? I thought it was the first. Hmm. Where is the first? Okay. That makes sense. That's fair. Yeah, I I remember reading something like that, and I'm curious if it changed or not, but I remember reading something like that sometime when I was in Carolina, and then I thought about it, and I realized that, like, more than half the churches, like the pastor or whatever, was had a doctorate. And I was like, <laughs> okay, yep, that, that definitely tracks. Like, this, this all makes sense. Uh, two other topics to bring up with respect to the numbers of where not only we have the fulcrum itself, but we also have strong rumors that we've never seen it, that there is another academy in the far north in the Arctic region, which had a certain element in my mind of being that farm they sent the do- your, your dog and goldfish to when you were a kid. Yeah. Um, where I'm not entirely sure whether it actually exists or it's just a nice excuse for when people disappear. Or maybe that's where um, they perform the lob- lobotomies for the node maintainers. Very true, though it, it's interesting when four of her classmates, you know, Disappear. well, three of her classmates she never sees again, two of them get stories, one of which is that he went he went up to the Northern Academy. Right. The third had no story. Yeah. She just disappeared. So um, The other issue, too, is that when we get on Demaya's explorations around the Fulcrum, we see a surprisingly large and abandoned and vacant area. They seem to have a massive amount of territory for people they actually have there. And it's mostly, in terms of what we see, abandoned housing. Seemingly abandoned in the active day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. I kind of drew an implication from that that the fulcrum itself used to be a lot more occupied. Mm-hmm. And then maybe due to pogroms or whatever else in the past, it has seen a precipitous decline in members or at least prior um, mass, potentially mass murder of members at the hands of a um, vengeful and hateful populace. So Don't know for sure for that. That was my interpretation. I guess I would guess it's slightly different, and I like wonder how um, my like I, I, how our our imaginings might mesh up because I guess I didn't get the sense that it was like left so quickly, but it was more. Um, I guess how I imagine places and universities and stuff like that, you know, when war sweeps through somewhere um, or, you know, people get called up to war or a cataclysm or something like that where stuff is just sort of left. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, um, we do we know when the fulcrum was established? Um, and it was established, a, who, it was after one of the seasons. Yeah, it was, it was after, after the season uh, of the teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, re- it's relatively recent compared to the historical events of this world. I mean, it was right. Well, out. the historical events of this world are 
possibly thousands of thousands of year old years old we just we don't really know we just know that there have been many many seasons and it's been a while since a season and the season of the teeth was a while ago and sometimes seasons last you know decades or years or hundreds of years or thousands and that's all unclear but i guess for me i got the sense that the fulcrum is really quite old yeah and so so... sorry i was just gonna ask a quick question do we get an actual like year number over the course of this book as to like what year it is at any point i Uh, i think it's like time since last season or something well because so i'm back in I'm back in the appendix, looking at the seasons, um, because Mm -hmm. you're you're right that the fulcrum was started at the end of the season of the teeth, because it is listed at the end of the listing of the season of the teeth as having started immediately (laughs) afterwards. Um, And so it's actually, so it's actually, time is measured kind of like a BCAD. It is a kind of, I suppose, before Imperial, are there any examples of that? Yes. So there's a before imperial and then an imperial. Um, and so season of the teeth ended in what is 1566 imperial. And there is at least, so I'm just going on like, what is the, based on this most recent? I have a date for you. It's okay. The choking season, right, that, which we do have a date yeah. on that, occurred most recently a little over a hundred years okay, ago. Okay, so choking season ended in 2719 imperial. Which oh, is, wow. yeah, so we're looking at okay. 1,400 years, I'm sorry, 1,200 years there with another 100 years, so thirteen to 1,400 years since the beginning of the fulcrum. Yeah, and somehow there's information, um, I should have looked through this because it has all kinds of fun stuff um, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, so I, I feel like the this was established a long, long time ago, so take like Oxford. There have probably been times that Oxford has been way more full and way more empty. Um, you know, yeah. I'm guessing in like World War One, World War Two, there were times that the dorms, like empty. people, hmm? yeah, pretty empty, right, yeah. were quite empty. And yeah. you know, because they're they're dormitories and they're specifically for students, it's less likely that there's stuff there. But if there was like dormitories or living quarters for professors or things like that and they got called up to the war effort i would assume that there would be essentially like a desk with papers on it and clothing and whatever else and they just brought like a a week of clothing or whatever or whatever they like packed with them to like go deal with stuff Mm -hmm. And, and then notably never came back well but obviously like you know we're talking about I mean, I'm talking about, like, a fringe case where these are professors, but, like, if you had, like, a manufacturing plant that had essentially housing in that city or whatever, mm-hmm. which was relatively common around that time, I believe, then when they left, like, their stuff would just be there. Yeah. And if they got then killed... Then it was never occupied. Yeah, but that's that, that's the thing I'm focusing on is that it appears to be never occupied again. Entire buildings of the dormitories or whatever else are now empty and abandoned for whenever they le- were left before. Something happened. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm going on something else. So go ahead. Well, I mean, one of the theories to ponder is that we see then with them forming with the fulcrum forming after the season of the teeth. There's been one, two, three, four, four separate. Uh, full-on fifth seasons that have occurred 
since that happened, with this organization essentially existing under the justification that they can protect people from these kind of events. If something like that plays out, you can imagine that a certain amount of uh, <laughs> resentment and revenge would focus in on them uh, under those circumstances. And so the other crazy thing, and I hadn't gone through this, and I probably should have read through the uh, uh, append- this appendix before we started this, um, is that the seasons, as recorded at least by the book, go back almost 10,000 years. Yeah, I just, uh, well, 10,000 years before Imperial. Right, which is so 12. Actually 12-ish thousand years, yeah. And so that's kind of crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, that's only the ones that they have some degree of stone lore about. Right. And like a, a fifth season, actually, and I didn't know this, um, like what, so now I am in... I have two things to give you that I'm looking at right now in the other appendix, which is the glossary. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a fifth season, I didn't realize that, so it is actually... Technical definition. There is a technical definition that is by... Per imperial designation. That was what I was going to say. It's an imperial designation. Um, that so it's an extended winter that lasts at least six months. Um, mm-hmm. But then it says in the definition per imperial designate super interest. Um, yeah. But what I was going to the other um, glossary definition, and I think that there are a ton of really interesting things in this one is actually right under that is the like glossary definition of the fulcrum, which I don't know if either of you read, um, and I nope, just read. But I'm doing it right now. So the fulcrum is a paramilitary order created by Old Sansa after the Season of Teeth, which we just said, 1560 Imperial. The headquarters of the fulcrum is in Eumenes, although two, sa- two satellite fulcrums are located in the Ant- Arctic and Antarctic region for maximum mm-hmm. ca- continental coverage. Fulcrum-trained tra- origins, or Imperial origins, are legally permitted permitted to practice the otherwise illegal craft of orogeny under strict organizational rules and with the close supervision of the Guardian Order. The fulcrum is self-managed and self-sufficient. Imperial origins are marked by their black uniforms and colloquially known as blackjack. And so, like, A, the fact that there are two satellites is interesting because we really only learn about one over the course of the Mm -hmm. text, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But this kind of weirdness of who is in charge of the fulcrum, there's, like, some skidgy language here as to the self-managed and self-sufficient... particularly immediately after you get the legally permitted to practice the otherwise illegal craft of virogeny under strict organizational rules with the close supervision of the guardian order. And so I know that one of the things we had talked about in an earlier episode and meant to come back to in this episode was how is the fulcrum organized? What is going on here? Um, who is in charge of it? Who is leading it? Like, what role do the Guardians play? Like, is it entirely origin organized? What does that look like? Uh, well, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> yeah, let me ask this question that there is clearly no answer to. But, like, it's, but, I don't know. It's, I don't understand it. Well, one of, the, one of the connotations I always got out of them describing how the fulcrum worked and how it was designed to protect us in some ways from the outside world and represent an image that the outside world finds palpable is I got a real strong feeling of Jewish ghettos and, and um, um, in Europe throughout the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. of where it's an isolated, self-contained environment of where officially that they're in control and officially being self-managing, but it's entirely at the discretion and overarching control of the outside forces that are essentially allowing them to live at sufferance. Yeah. So that seems to be the kind of world we're in, and that description from the from the encyclopedia seems to very much ma- match that. 
in terms of how it is managed. I mean, we are str it's strongly suggested that there is a fulcrum leadership, that there is some kind of council that's making decisions to a certain degree, because we get orders from fulcrum individuals to fulcrum individuals. And clearly somebody so from the outside has to be interacting with them, if only because, um, you know, we get, is it, what's the coastal town that they go to, Alia? Mm -hmm. Somebody yeah. from Alia contacts somebody in the fulcrum. Um, yeah. to request and or and pay for their services. Yeah, and they're able to send messages back to the fulcrum when they're there. Mm -hmm. So there is some degree of interconnections that are operating this world that the fulcrum operates under. In terms of how it operates with the outside leadership of the world, we're really given some odd conflicting statements. I mean, there seem to be imperial licensure, imperial guidelines, imperial orders, but there seems to be very little reporting to imperial authorities. Not that there is much in the way of an imperial leadership now. Maybe there was more in the past that they had to report to. But we see the case with, um, I'm blanking on her name. What's the name? Yumenez, the, the, the leadership girl that's, that smuggles her oh, way in. Oh, Beamhoff. Yeah. Beamhoff. She is in the leadership cast. She is one of the most powerful members of the society in Yumenez. But apparently, she has no way to get information about what's going on inside the fulcrum, other than to smuggle herself in to find, find it herself. Which is odd that the most powerful family, arguably the most powerful family in the most powerful city in the world, has no degree to establish inf an information connection with the fulcrum. So it seems like when they say self-managed and self-sufficient, they really do mean that. In that, yeah, they operate to a degree under sufferance from how the outside world, the rules the outside world is set. But they choose when and where and how they want to interact with the outside world and its leadership. As for the Guardians themselves, we have not the slightest clue nor much to go on on how they are organized or where they are come from, and that's a whole other topic for us to discuss as we're going through these unanswered questions of the book. And so what I will say um, <laughs> about the Guardians, and this is simply because I was reading about them yesterday because I'm reading this the second book and I'm not very far, rereading the second book and I'm not very far into it and don't remember any of it at all. Um, but like mm -hmm. in the early parts of the second book, you both learn more about guardians and in typical Jemison fashion, as you are learning a little bit more about guardians, you feel like you know much less. <laughs> She's just broadened the complexity of <laughs> yeah. the world. And so I'm like, yeah, oh, I, I have these couple of questions answered and now I have 14,000 other questions. Let's confirm, just just to address Guardians before we go back to Alabaster, because mm -hmm. there's a lot about Alabaster I want to go back yes. to before yeah, we yeah. go into so much else. Uh, I think we know that they are the children of Origins. I think we know we are told that they right? are the children of Origins who do not who are not themselves Origins. Right. Uh, we know that they are, that what they are is in many ways I'll just say mechanically assisted. That there appears to be a certain amount of uh, surgery that occurs yeah. uh, to install a device where the um, origin power organs would be in the back of their neck there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess I get um, a uh, mistborn, like, you know, the the blood rites kind of thing going. Um, I still have not read Mistborn. I figured we'd read that on the podcast at some point, so I've been holding off. <laughs> oh, you should just read it. I actually don't know that that would be a, a... I think it'd be fun to cover, but I feel like there's been so much out there already that that it's a safe read 
Um, mm-hmm. Sarah, have you? No, I haven't read gone it. into uh, it. Yeah, I don't um, think so. No. Yeah, that, I mean they're fun. They're they're whatever. But I think uh, again, relying too much on one author since we've been doing a lot of short stories from Sanderson. Um, I actually think that there are better offerings to do that would be more amenable to the podcast format rather than doing yet another trilogy or quad or quintilogy that he seems to be doing with like the second iteration of these. Um, Mm -hmm. And not that I I think that we're going to, you know, stop this anytime soon or whatever. Um, But uh, if we're averaging three to four episodes per book and doing a trilogy is like, uh, you know, nine to twelve episodes, oh and that sort of ends up being <laughs> yeah. like most of a year. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, um, but but anyway, so so basically, there's this other uh, magic that they do that's based on uh, basically doing a sort of surgical like transfer of power kind of thing. Um, that's mm-hmm. gruesome and and all kinds of things and um, hopefully you guys actually do read Mistborn at some point and I'd like to have an an off podcast conversation yeah, um, yeah about yeah. it um, uh, and maybe we'll have that as a, like some of our bonus features that we'll release oh um, that would be nice that'd be good yeah um, but yeah so so it's this like weird surgical procedure where something is um, inputted and I guess the other thing that I wanted to comment here quickly um i was just reading the definition of a napper and mm-hmm. uh my assumption was that this was stone napping or, or glass napping or something mm-hmm. like that where, where they were making tools but actually oh. it's just a tool maker and yeah. um and if they're bad at it they're called a ruster and so they're making metal tools so okay the the understanding of their technology level i feel like was from different clues of the words that Jemison used mm-hmm. and I feel like she used words to make it seem like they were kind of technologically backwards mm-hmm. but I don't know that that's the case um, and I actually vaguely read an article somewhere about you know one of the problems of using like common words and common phrases is that if there isn't a reference for that in the world that you've created, it makes weird difficulties. And I think Jemison has done a really good job of using what language and phrases that would be native to this world, mm-hmm. like rusting ruin and stuff like that for the curses. Um, mm-hmm. But, but Napper becomes a little bit exactly, sk- you know, skidgy, that yeah. threw me for yeah, yeah. For a loop and having that definition in the back while is super helpful is kind of annoying that that wasn't uh, made a little bit more clear in the text because that puts a very different uh, sense to what is going on and mm-hmm. what um, so geoneers and had I read it and realized <laughs> it was G E O N E E R rather than like uh, engineer just a sort of like yeah. Yeah. Right, but these very much are portmanteaus where this is a geological engineer and a geomast is a geological chemist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe a lot of the sciences and stuff like that are revolved around geological things because they're cataclysmic and very Because that's important. the world, yeah. But, mm-hmm. but their level of technology, you know, they obviously don't have cell phones and, and probably don't have computers, but, like, that's not clear that they don't. Yeah, 
And so, A, we are getting to the drawback of listening to the audiobook instead of reading the (laughs) actual book. You may know how to pronounce things, but I know how they're spelled. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think, you know, it's interesting because we did have, like, that, the Napper definition itself is to kill Orleans. We did have a whole conversation about kind of, like, um, Essun's husband as a napper and kind of what that meant in terms of their technology and all of that, which we, given that definition, now might be sort of wrong on what that what that meant. Right, um, and also the description of Tonki being yeah. off, have, like, looking at the water mm-hmm. and using mm-hmm. some contraption that I think was described as a stick, but, like, now, in my head, that stick could have been literally anything like it could have been you know some sort of like weird litmus paper uh you know plastic tube thing that somebody just looking at it would say oh that's a stick i mean i'm sure like if somebody completely unfamiliar with you know a science lab came in and like watched me do work was just like well he took one stick and put it in another (laughs) stick and then like "Ah, i don't know um yeah and so and, and the other thing is that you know i had this sort of theory and i think some of it some of it still holds up is that kind of in especially some of the more severe seasons some technology knowledge gets lost right Mm -hmm. um people did the wrong people survived to remember that technology like nobody knows it anymore and some of that clearly does happen slash they also have some dead civ remnants that clearly say like well, they had not learned the stone lore yet. Like, yeah, these stupid and... idiots built balconies at one point, which is the craziest shit we've ever heard. Um, mm-hmm. but... We have to go back to that um, because and, and figure out uh, uh, anyway. So let's address yeah. it now. Well, let's finish a topic over the course of this podcast. <laughs> the only the only thing that I was going to say in addition to that is that. The one technology that we really, really know was lost, lost, um, at least within the confines of what we know in the in the book, which, okay. Um, the lunar calendar? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I suppose the lunar <laughs> calendar. Okay, so Fair. the second thing. <laughs> um, but the, the place we really get it is in Tiramo, which is um, the sort of underground community that mm-hmm. um, Essun finds herself in eventually, that is like inside mm-hmm. of a glowing geode. Thing. Like, there are all kinds of things that happen in that geode that nobody has any idea how they were yeah. built or they work. They just happen to continue working. But God forbid they should stop. Everybody panics um, because nobody knows how, how to get them going again. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I guess I will say um, in a quick shout out to a possible upcoming podcast, um, I feel like nuclear technology like, we wouldn't have to lose that many people before doing any sort of, uh, BJ? you know, nuclear power plant stuff is just completely lost. And everyone's just like, well, that's insane. And if there was one running, because there are plants that at least could be designed, less likely the ones that we have now, that are relatively self-sustaining. Like, there's nothing that you need to do to, like, deal with that. And if that was running some sort of, you know, um, HVAC system and uh, running water and whatever else, and it was one of the few that was still left, people would just be like, well, this is, we have no idea what's going on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you had some cataclysm where, you know, there was a shutdown of a bunch of these that caused a, a an extended winter, as uh, there are many other books that deal with, uh, like, nuclear winter type things, which could have very well been a previous fifth season, and then there's something like this around that, I mean, I feel like that could be a, a relatively easy explanation and, and uh, you know, maybe they are in, in basically a nuclear power plant and that's what's making it glow. <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh, but the shout out is, you know, we've talked about uh, doing a review of Chernobyl. And yeah. Spencer, uh, Terry, I guess, I mean, Lee, told me to tell <laughs> you um, because you have one episode. Who the fuck <laughs> Because you and Bridget have one episode left that um, every t- everything turns out fine. Um, and it's all okay at the end. I mean, Spencer doesn't know history, so, I mean, <laughs> like, I'm sure he'll believe that. And, and, uh, and really, well, spoilers? <laughs> I was just going to offer a bit, a bit of history. You mentioned, like, the automation that exists in plants. One of my favorite bits of trivia is but the worst nuclear accident we had in the U.S. was Three Mile Island. And it happened because, even, like, back in the 70s, the operators of the plant twice turned off the automatic system that was trying to stop the problem. That's the level of automation that we even had back then. Good. But like you guys said, it this is a world that really doesn't seem to have much in the way of complex computers that we see or automation um, or understanding of how automated, te- automated uh, technology works. Mm-hmm. Because particularly with the geode, they have no clue how these systems work or even how to address them. But they seem to just automatically come on when orogeny is in the area. Uh, another, another bit of technology that we see frequently around the world, but that... Nobody other than maybe the Guardians have any clue about, or, you know, also our wayward geomist, is uh, the obelisks themselves. Yes. Where they seem to be the most obvious and visible reminder that there are ages of this world that no one remembers and to which all knowledge of has. Of where um, our uh, geomist that's wandering around with our um, Asun says that she, I mean, she seems to believe that the obelisks were actually produced in the socket. Do I have that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems strongly suggested that the socket itself has connections to the Guardian Order, based on that really creepy conversation that uh, Demaya has with that one Guardian before she's put down by her, I forget the term, mentor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of varieties of technology this world seems to, seems to have lost. I mean, the technology that we see in this world is straight-up schizotech, which is a certain degree realistic that... When we're operating on the margins far removed from the uh, Equatorials and Yumenez, the technology, like when in the town that Demaya comes from, seems like, I mean, the impression I got when, when we were first exploring that chapter was the technology there was practically medieval. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see nothing of advanced technology. We see basically just the classic depiction of the Dark Ages of, of barns and filth and not much else. Um, but the closer we get to the Equatorial regions, we see what more closely resembles more modern age technology, or even 20th century technology at times, automatic lighting, electricity, all kinds of varieties of modern conveniences. So maybe that's just, you know, a realistic depiction of how even in our own world, technology can vary greatly based on class or location or country. Yeah, this is clearly China. I mean, it's the sons of <laughs> empire is, is they're Chinese. And I mean, ash blown hair, other than apparently it's technically like gray to white is... I feel like a very particular description of it's uh, wiry, stiff, and has a somewhat upward uh, f- sprouting, or I don't remember what flare, the term that they she call used. it. Yeah, yeah, an upward mm-hmm. flare, uh, and you know, and then you know, some will often come down to the shoulders, and it's like, okay, well, that's 
clearly very very asian other than gray as opposed to like black isn't particularly affected by acid which was a very weird part of the description well i I mean i think that yeah if you are if you are living in a in a world where um sort of quakes and shakes send up ash and all kinds of other eternal earthly like get acid rain and you make from the acid yeah and you can also use their hair as a decent filter for ash which also Mm -hmm. seemed like a very these are multi-purpose people you got here yeah keep one of them around you get a little swiss army knife yeah a sheer length um (laughs) yeah so i guess i it wouldn't surprise me that you know if you went to china now that within a hundred miles of any given city you could find conditions very much like that sure of where you can find people that have essentially been operating on the same level of technology as they were about a thousand, you know, five hundred, a thousand years in the past. Yeah. So um, I was in uh, Mexico twenty-ish years ago, a little bit, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, mm-hmm. And not far out of Puerto Vallarta, there was a little city or town or something that uh, I had gone to as part of a large group, and literally there was a telephone like a i think payphone like at the school or something Mm -hmm. and that was sort of the extent of connectivity that this town had um and that's kind of like a you know it it exists and and it's it it wasn't surprising to me at the time yeah Mm -hmm. well and i think you know actually the sort of um spencer as you say the sort of schizotech of this world actually reminds me a little bit of living in molly um, which is one I of the... you were going to say uh, living in Nashville, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, living in Nashville has some schizotech. Um, but, you know, Mali is one of the poorest countries in the world, but we are living in a relatively global economy. And so, you know, it was a situation where, like, day by day I had a cell phone. Um, mm-hmm. And now, granted, it was, and I wish I still had one, the indestructible Nokia um, oh, those were so fun. Oh, yeah, they're the best. <laughs> yes, with, oh, with yeah. the snake game on it, and yep. you could mm-hmm. drop them in water and leave them there, and they would be fine. Um, and so, like, I had a cell phone, and but I had to, like, walk a kilometer up the road to be able to get signal and stand at the top of the hill and, like... <laughs> tilt my head in the proper direction you also had to go buy credit and so you got these little like cards that you dialed in the number to give you credit on your cell phone um mm-hmm. but also at the same time like i was cooking over a charcoal fire every night um and had no electricity in my house and um you know had no running water and was using um what amounts to really less than an outhouse um to go to the bathroom and so like i don't know there are places in the world that still have the in our world that have a sort of schizotech kind mm-hmm. of understanding of just how you live your day-to-day lives no i mean so- in some ways this world this world is a pretty direct metaphor i think for the disparity in worlds in our that we see in our world yeah. where you no longer exerts an active military control over the rest of the world but it has just cultural influence mm. that it uses to dominate all the other, other nations around. It has incredible dominance in technology. It has incredible luxury. While if you go a few hundred miles away, people aren't even protected against the earthquakes that are just a natural course of events of this planet. Yeah, I'm going to continue going with China here. 
Um, well, I mean, I think that, you know, you can potentially put the sort of, like, Senzed people as Chinese, possibly, but we get a lot of other... I mean, we have a lot of other different sort of representative... Like, if you were trying to draw a comparison to kind of, like, our geography or races or whatever, like, there, there's a wide variety that we get here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think you're specifically talking about Sansid, sort of Sansid culture, right? Right, which is essentially the culture of of note here. Well, um, yeah, the, certainly of Yumenes. Right, but it is, it's the Sansid Empire. And, well, well mm-hmm. yeah, it is the imperial power. It's the imperial power, it's the desired race by breeders, as far as I can tell, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, um, they don't have a one-child policy, but... Um, there, there is definitely like a focus of uh, control that this Sunset Empire seems to have, even over the fulcrum and, and everything else. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's it's a more perse- pervasive sense of controlling the uh, motivations and the culture, though, than it is active political, at least in the present day of the world. So we started on this with Ashblow hair. Yep. Can I go back to the glossary for a second? <laughs> What you got? So at the very end, there is a whole and a very large entry on Ashblow hair in the glossary. Um, yep. And at the very end, and I just think this is this is interesting. Right. I don't know that we necessarily need to talk about it, but like it says, um, after it gives a kind of definition of what it is, in most comms, breeder guidelines acknowledge texture alone. However, equatorial breeders generally also require natural, quote, ash coloration, slate gray to white, present from birth, for the coveted designation. (laughs) Like, that's fascinating. They they have the luxury in the equatorial regions to worry about the aesthetics. In in most comms, it's merely the function. They just wanted to keep the acid out of their eyes. Yeah. Um, So why don't we spend a little bit more time on alabaster and cover the other couple of things that we wanted to talk about him and then continue with all of the insane or maybe like a couple of the insane questions that we have especially Mm -hmm. about their tech um i definitely want to cover what uh obelisks are um or at least our theories (laughs) Um, and i think that (laughs) sort of goes in with the uh the creepy sharp hole and um, then maybe like what the fulcrum is, and then there are a couple of other minor questions. But but let's let's uh, continue with alabaster, and then get to the more general questions that don't really have to do with alabaster. Uh, can, can I ask just an overarching one nope. about alabaster? Yeah. Okay, uh, BJ is ruled. I cannot speak. <laughs> go for it, Spencer. No, no, go ahead. Uh, why did alabaster destroy the world? Are you talking about like the the preface chapter that presumably is after the last cyanite chapter i mean yes that chapter as well as the as well as the explanation he provides at the end of the book too yeah uh because they killed his child and and he had like he finally had happiness and they didn't need to do it and so he's angry and is uh to go with our f theme fuck this fuck you fuck everything and i'm gonna fuck everything up I think that's true. So, I think that he is also, I don't think that it was one, I mean, maybe it was one precipitating event, but like, I think that has been his plan for decades. I think mm-hmm. he's been building to that. Um, so 
I think that some things needed to happen, and honestly, I think that his meeting Cyanite really precipitated it because yes. he n- he not only wants to destroy things, he wants to remake things. And I think that now that he's met somebody else that can control the obelisks, he's willing to put in the destruction that that will then cause a refashioning of the uh, you know fickle world that this is yeah i mean you get a you get a sense at the in the kind of end of or in the later essun chapters that when they meet again in tiramo that he was waiting for her particularly but even waiting for someone um who was able to kind of help him in this rebuilding process that Mm -hmm. Um, or take it all over for him because yes, yeah, he's yeah. turning to stone. Yeah, and he does, like, spoiler, except not spoiler because it happens very quickly. Like, he continues to stone in the next book very, very quickly mm-hmm. um, because that is obviously the trajectory that he is on. Uh, two questions then on that point. Um, if Cyanite, as soon everyone referred to her, was in many ways the catalyst for him to help bring this plan about, why did he wait 20 years to do it? Because the, the, the last moment he sees Cyanide is very far separated, presumably, from when he does his acts at the beginning, of the beginning of this book. It is a long gap where we are not provided, at least in this book, any degree of knowledge about where he was, why he was. He seemingly was operating under the assumption that she was dead. Um, but there's a 20-year gap between those two events. So if she is the catalyst, are we given any evidence or thought for what led to that so long of a delay in this plan being brought about. Well, and so I I just, I don't have an answer. I just want to tag on one of my kind of major driving questions for this episode that goes directly to what Mm -hmm. you were saying, Spencer, is like, what are our speculations about where Alabaster was? Yeah. Like, what, what was he, what, what was he doing? Um, So I would guess that he got confirmation that, as soon as alive, or the cyanide as soon as alive, and that's what immediately precipitated what was going on. And my my theory that I'm gonna go with that I just sort of came up with <laughs> is that um, Hoa essentially communicated to, or there there was a meeting of the Stone Eaters at some point. Hoa disagreed with them, got kicked out, but that. Um, Antimony. Mm-hmm. I had to remember my element song. Antimony <laughs> knows that Cyanite is alive and communicated that to Alabaster. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to one of my follow-up questions of where um, do we believe... I, I haven't answered this in my own mind, but are we assuming then that Alabaster went to this geode with the intent of finding Asun there and with the knowledge that she was? Or did he only was he only informed after he essentially got there as part of all of seemingly the origins being brought to this location? Well, so, so he think, got there before she got there. Right. So I think that Antimony basically communicated, hey, like there were essentially having a meeting of all of the origins that can. I, I, so I'm going to posit that origins that can talk. to two obelisks have an assigned stone eater possible I buy that we have two that we know of for sure uh, and we I would have say a three. sort of dead stone eater in the broken obelisk right but i would say three because there was the stone eater that 
sort of came along with the origin. Uh, that, that greeted them, essentially. Yes. But we don't oh. know that she can interact with the obelisks, though, do we? No, we don't. But she is kind of like Ika's stone eater. Yeah, yeah. And she has she has a stone eater, no question. I just don't. I didn't. I, I didn't think we'd saw her interact with an obelisk. No, we have. We do know that she seemingly. We do know that she has unique powers. It could just be a unique power thing of where sure. she can send out a pulse and origins are drawn to her. Yes. Um, so, so uh, sort of any one of those things that, that maybe like they the pairing is different than just obelisk base or, or not, but that, that is sort of what sort of precipitates a lot of what's going on. And the stone eaters probably have a completely different agenda, but that they kind of know what's going on with their origin fairly intimately. And so, and they also communicate within themselves. And so Alabaster would know what Cyanide's doing and everything else if he could get that information from Antimony. Um, and that's kind of how well, this falls together. I, mean, I think it's an interesting theory. I mean, I think the only, the only possible flaw in it that we see is just how utterly resistant Hoa is, an utterly hostile Hoa is to the other... Um, stone eaters that we see that's why i think uh, he had a falling out and that, so i think that they have some agenda that he didn't agree with mm-hmm. um i would guess that and or like i we, we don't really know he just seems hostile to all of them whereas antimony doesn't seem hostile to him mm-hmm. particularly but antimony whereas, also doesn't seem to have like real emotion like she right. is not taken no. on that affect but no, the the only time we see her smile is when she's literally eating alabaster. Well, that so makes right, me happy. Yeah, but but Ika's stone eater seems to be not. She's cool got a sense with of humor. Toa. No, yeah, or at least well, Toa's yeah, not cool true. with her. Right, but I think like she was not cool with. Uh, well, it's unclear. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I can just make up a story in my head and, and you know float it by and, <laughs> sure. and we can have it's like a subreddit it's, fan theory thing which is it's be- best we got that um Hoa basically has a different proposal for humankind compared mm-hmm. to most of the other stone eaters and most of the other stone eaters sort of want to do something else and that sort of entails getting all of the origins and a handful of other people into Tarimo. wait Tarimo. Tarimo's yes. where that's the geo. No, 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 no. T- no. Really? I thought Tiru. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, that's yeah, right. Tarimo's... So what's the? I'm sorry, I've been using the the place names wrong. What's the name of the that's... geode? I don't remember. We'll just call it. I the do geode. not remember. Um, the geode place is good. Okay. Yeah. Well, every time I said Tiramo before this episode, just yes. replace it with the geode. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Castrima. Castrima. That's Castrima. it. It's Castrima yes. under. Particularly because mm-hmm. the town of Castrimo was the original above ground town. It's cover. Right. Yeah. So, what? go ahead, Spencer. Well, I mean, I just, uh, we're, we're, we're going to get very far afield from Alabaster because every time we talk about Alabaster, there's no clear answer and he's very opaque, but we keep on finding very fun topics around him. <laughs> um, but uh, this is just a practical question that if we view Ho as an outsider, what sense do we make of Ho's quote unquote birth or showing up on the scene of when he seems to emerge from a geode of his own or a capsule of its own that has been that has uh, emerged from a rock slot yeah um that's it is sorry go when ahead. i first read yeah but, uh, uh, last thought there and then i'll pursue another one. when i first read that i assumed it was you know somebody from the distant past that was waking up but then we later find out that 
Stone Eaters do not do not have any set form. They can only assume a form when they wish, but their natural state is not that. I then came to the conclusion that maybe this geode is in some way allowing him to assume a very human-like form for the purpose of the mission that he set himself off on, but I don't think it's ever really explained what this geode is and why he's emerging from it, seemingly out of the middle of a rock slide. And my All question right, actually has to... Stone Eaters are androids, and <laughs> they're just like, uh, their, their form is like whatever they decide it to be because they're essentially just computer programs. Anyway, sorry, Thank Sarah. Sarah, Sarah, please. Well, I, maybe that answers my question. I don't know. Um, but my question kind of goes along with this because I think, to me, it was unclear... And it gets, like, I actually fall into the same trap that Essen falls into, is because Hoa has chosen to take the form of a young child, mm-hmm. that he seems young, right? And that is clearly yeah. not true because stone, eat- stone eaters are weird, but I'm, un- I'm unclear. <laughs> if, I don't know. Because um, <laughs> stone eaters are weird explains a lot. Go on. And maybe that's the answer to my other question. Um, I am unclear... If, like, if he's a new stone eater, because he was born, quote-unquote born, he hatched from his geode, I guess, um, when we saw him. Or is he, like, reborn? Or was he hibernating? Like, I'm unclear. Well, I guess my, my real point is I'm unclear on what stone eaters are, which is not not a, like, useful point to make. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm unclear on sort of Hoa specifically, because, like, he seems to have some sort of knowledge, but he also does seem... He still seems young. Yeah. I, I, I Like you, you bring up a really fun question to ponder of how much of that is just put on as a kind of intentional, if maybe well-meaning, act of emotional manipulation. I mean, we, we have him openly admit that a lot of the reason for why he does things is because I wanted you to like me. Right. And I took, I took that as being just a very touching statement, but one could also look at that as... Because I needed you to like me, and also <laughs> because, because I'm like doing these things, yeah, and also because yeah. like my normal form is like very unlikable, um, yeah, which would suggest that he is like this is some sort of re- reincarnation is not the right word, but like reiteration. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I don't know, and I don't know if stone eaters like we know so little, so little about stone eaters. Um, I don't know if there are like a set number of them that sort of regenerate every once in a while or if there are new ones made or or what. And and Hoa makes it particularly hard because he is the only stone eater we see that chooses to make himself into the form of a child. Right. Um, but and that does one, bring yep. up all of these kind of like, asso- sorry, associations. Yep. Uh, I don't know. I still just have this theory that like stone eaters are... Uh, obelisk associated and so when somebody does something with an obelisk or something Mm -hmm. something with the we'll call it technology of the planet um and affects it that and can affect it they get assigned a guardian that just kind of like is theirs and so you mean a stone eater who is theirs yes uh right sorry not a guardian um (laughs) and so i i would posit that um cyanide has more than stone eater or had more than one stone eater at mm-hmm. some point and i guess now that i think about it i wonder if hoa killed a stone eater oh if that stone eater in alia in that obelisk right. above alia was killed by hoa maybe because we do see like a couple of different moments of hoa being like super vicious um yep. mm-hmm. and like really uncomfortably so yeah so, so so that would suggest bj that there are a set number of stone eaters 
um, that potentially get kind of reconfigured, reborn something when a different origin connects with an obelisk. And so I guess that's kind of why, like, maybe, maybe not, because it's when Alabaster refers to using obelisks, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like he's used only one. So maybe like the, uh, there's an obelisk network. And if somebody taps into it, then they sort of get a stone eater. But it seems like obelisks are also personal because obelisks follow. They bond to you. Yeah. Right. But yeah, it's unclear it... if they just bond to like the closest person that can use them. Yeah, I don't or the know. Or per- the person that does use them the last or something like that or if it's a you know those obelisks are cyanides now rather than alabasters and they're willing to follow her across a continent it's one of the ways that uh, tonki helps find her is that this obelisk has been literally traveling thousands of miles to be back with her more than one because she was able to triangulate true True. so but she was also the last person to interact with both of them so it could be a kind of like well right that, that's a kind marriage of, of convenience was, yeah right and so then then that brings up the alabaster like he has a stone eater that like is basically a deus ex machina plot armor piece <laughs> mm-hmm. um and so both, both plot plot armor and a sort of like the knowledge that he is going to die eventually you know by by season of the teeth style right uh, methods but <laughs> yeah but then the other side of that that to me like is again a little bit more confusing is like what kind of prescience does alabaster does antimony have because yeah. she shows up or it shows up when like shit's going down um but kind of either intermediate or aftermath like i do we think that guardian would have killed alabaster yeah like, if Cyanite hadn't tapped into the obelisk, which who knows why Alabaster didn't, but if Cyanite... He got hit. Right, he got Sorry. hit early, but, like, yeah. he, like why... So, okay, so if you have a shotgun and some dude comes at you with a knife, do mm-hmm. you shoot him with a shotgun before they get close to you, or do you, like, let them come within stabbing distance? Like, well, if I'm in, if I'm in the middle of a crowded street and I don't know for certain he's going to pull the knife on me, that's kind of the situation that it seemed like Alabaster was in. And then, unfortunately, the guy was a lot quicker on the knife than he was on the shotgun. Okay, I, I guess I, I imagined that, um, you know, Sharks was Jeff's fight scene a little bit differently. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, so so I guess that that's kind of where it's just like antimony just sort of seems to show up like when the island is going all Krakatoa and um, sort of right after that uh, Guardian interaction and uh, I feel like there's one more that I'm blanking on. Um, well, it seems like antimony displays a, what is a common stone eater trait that Hoda that Hoa notably doesn't. In that she, her natural state is not being corporeal as such. It is operating in the earth and able to move almost instantaneously through the earth. Um, and so she's able to appear wherever she wishes, whenever she wishes. How, as you said, that she knows when she needs to appear. All we have is Alabaster just kind of shrugging it off and saying she just has a connection to me and knows about where I am and what I need and what I'm feeling. Um, I mean, building off that, how do we feel about the fact that Hoa, after he emerges from that geode never displays that trait, probably the most indicative of Andamoni's traits, 
He always remains very much corporeal, solid, and purposely human. Is that a conscious choice in his part, or is that as a result of whatever he went through to be in his present childlike state? And that's... Elvina. Yeah, that's such an interesting question, because, like, what, the only evidence we get here, which is super sketchy, is from um, kind of Essen's incomplete knowledge of what stone eaters are. And so she suggests or thinks or puts forward as a theory that mm -hmm. Hoa wanted to make himself sort of more amenable to her um, so that they could travel together and she wouldn't ask too many questions and whatever, whatever. And that Antimony doesn't really have that concern. But she doesn't mm -hmm. know. She doesn't Not have any idea. She's, she is spitballing with the same knowledge that yes. we have. Yeah. And uh, like, I guess I assume that there are different types of interactions that they can have um in we'll call them different forms um so like the passing through earth form i would guess that they have essentially like tendril kind of information that they can get about what's going on mm -hmm. but it's not as prescient or useful or something and i would assume that hoa is gathering intel and so the conversations and like seeing more of what's going on like above ground is something that's kind of it's necessary to take on that form if you want to interact with people as yeah. opposed to just have like a you know weird sensory uh network thing or you know does antimony just kind of like uh you know peter pan shadow kind of thing you know just sort of hang out like where alabaster is at all time yeah, I don't know. I get the impression that Antimony is sort of like, when she is not actively with Alabaster in some way, that she is sort of like Three-Eyed Raven tapped into the network under the ground <laughs> doing her rock thing. Like, I don't yeah. know. She, she, only, she only seems, and granted this is the sort of limited perspective that we get, but like she only seems to be doing things um, around Alabaster. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, like, again, you know, so I'm unclear as to, to where that falls. But, so Spencer, if you didn't have anything else on this, I wanted to know if you had any more alabaster things, or if we should move on to the general questions. Well, I've got uh, two origin, uh, two uh, stone eater questions and one alabaster question. Okay, alabaster so, question. Yeah, start with the alabaster uh, alabaster question this is kind of tying back into his motivations for the end of the world of where he says at the end if we you know whatever we want to interpret it that he's done this to end the cycle of the fifth season yep uh how do we take that does he literally mean i'm going to bring about a fundamental change to the geology of this world Yep. Does he mean that he's going to bring about a society that more greatly respects origins so that they can more effectively control the hostile influences, impulses of this world? Um, what what does he mean when he literally brings the moon into the conversation right after he says this? What do y'all think? So there's an NPR or maybe San Diego specific uh, program where I think they talk to like local professors or people at universities or just have general conversations about like sci-fi topics and like kind of what would really happen like does this make sense with science and whatever um and in the ad snippet that they sort of teased uh and i may end up listening to this it was just like what would happen if 
and I assume this happens in some book, like a meteor hit the moon and it shifted closer. Mm-hmm. And the tidbit w- w- that they had was, well, there would be a lot more volcanic activity and, and there'd be problems there. Okay. So, um, and that was like earlier today or yesterday or something that this came up. And so with that information from that tiny snippet, I say, yeah, like hands down, yeah. Like presumably, you know, the like last sentence that he has is like, have you ever heard of a moon? Um, that, that he's essentially trying to fix the uh, seismic nonsense that's been going on because of a lack of a moon. Um, and that's but his what goal. The, but what the fuck does the end of the world have to do with that, though? Well, so if the if the start of the fifth season cycle was because we destroyed the moon, which is heavily foreshadowed, mm-hmm. like we destroyed uh, Father Earth's only child, and he became angry, and that's when the season started. I believe is something that's said yes but why does he need to cause a new fifth season to bring this about uh so i think this leads into some of the other questions that that i have and i'm going to to posit that um you know what's the purpose of the fulcrum and i think part of the purpose of the fulcrum is to deal with the fifth seasons and stuff like that and i guess it's a paramilitary group and i should have read the appendices before uh, going into this but um, if there was a group that was essentially responsible for destroying the moon and for some reason thinks that this was that this is a better way to live than what came previously, they would be um well we'll call them lunatics. Um but um <laughs> her, her. Yes, uh um but you know, they would presumably be against a return to some sense of normalcy that a moon would give and so it would rob them of power perhaps um and like i guess we sort of don't know what the origin fulcrum thing is other than like some people are born with it and how that like fits into the rest of the world but if this has to do with like the moon destruction and alabaster wants to create another moon to stabilize the world if you're essentially saying that like the Sanzid empire the fulcrum and all of the ruling classes are going to completely lose power because they're going to change how the the universe the 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 world works then he had to do that to then bring about what he considers normalcy Okay, but it seems to be a rather absolute way, absolutist way to go about it, given that humanity is unlikely to even survive the scale of this fifth season, based on their description of where we're talking about possibly thousands of years of no sunlight. There will be no food. Yeah. Um, so, I, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know about thousands of years of no sunlight and, and no food and stuff but, like that, but... but. I mean, they talk. They talk about this be, be possibly at least hundreds, if not thousands, of years of disruption before things ever return back to normal. Well, but th- um, that's not Alabaster saying that. That's Ika, and she probably has no idea well, about. That's also Essun saying that. Yeah. Right, Essun saying that to Ika, and neither yeah. have Alabaster's concept of remaking the world. Well, okay. Well, I guess if you if you think that he has a sort of like real plan of like m- m- the logistics of remaking the world, that's true. 
Um, if he has some, some magic thing in his back pocket to close up the Siberian traps that he's opened in the middle of this world, we don't know about it, but I suppose it's possible. Uh, hope he's able to convey that information before he goes full stony and dies, probably a few pages into the next book. He's got, you know, tens of pages. <laughs> tens. <laughs> tens of Kindle Someone pages. take notes, I don't have one. <laughs> I actually, I don't remember if he dies or not. He's still alive when I'm reading, um, so okay. I don't know. He, he's not looking good where we are at the end of he's the He's looking part. worse where I am. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I guess you don't know. One of the things, and this is not, this is not helpful to any sort of Anthus question at all. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I'm going to a, an entirely different se- series. Um, but one of the things I think is interesting just about Jemison as an author and how... Um, kind of this question that we're asking right now about what stable worlds look like and what mm-hmm. flourishing worlds look like. Um, she She's clearly very interested in that question, just sort of writ large, because I'm reading the first in a different series of hers right now. Um, and I don't remember what the name of the series is, but the first book is called The Killing Moon. So she's also very interested in moons in all of the things that she does. Um, but one of the kind of premise, premises of that book is that, and there's a lot of stuff associated around it, but like, is that we have to maintain peace at all costs. Um, mm-hmm. And so kind of thinking about that in relation to the stillness is is interesting because, like, that is a world in which I suppose you actually can maintain peace because it's actually a political peace instead of a sort of, like, tectonic worldly peace that you are mm-hmm. trying to maintain in in this novel. Um, and I don't really know where I was going with that, but it is, it, it's interesting that she is concerned with a sort of, like, difference and upset world mm-hmm. and a world kind of kept well, under that, bounds. And that seems to be the... the the world that Alabaster is directly targeting. Mm-hmm. Because the Sansa Empire has built a peace. It has built a stability. It has built a persistent culture in a way the world has not any memory of having before. Yeah. Uh, it has provided the measure of stability by which a world has been able to flourish in peace by a certain definition. Like a 10% growth year after year? That kind <laughs> of thing. Very much so, yes. Alabaster is directly targeting that peace he is blowing it apart he is the the focal point by which he is bringing about this fifth season is the heart of that peace of that culture that has persisted it is not only the fulcrum presumably but is also Jimenez and the entire equatorial region that he blows apart in a, a magma line that stretches for thousands of miles and the mm-hmm. and the university too i mean everything yeah. that's in the equatorial regions all of the central communities all of the culture all of the technology is he's blowing it apart the very basis by which this peace exists wait well um, okay so i i imagine this cataclysm smaller oh, oh. the description of the first pages is is where you could see it from orbit cafe well that also gets to a question we asked i think you last can see Luxor from orbit i don't know but we, the question was: Was the scene we got in the first, or was the the situation we got in the first scene? Um, what what apocalypse were we getting? I, I saw that as alabaster and antimony sitting on a ridge outside Humanes, having a conversation about what the end of the world will be. I did, I did too. But I think that it is maybe not clear cut that that is what we are seeing. Sure. Yeah, I actually imagine that this was uh, 
Shimshena and right uh, and Misalem. Yeah, Misalem. Well, or which whichever well, one's the origin, yeah, and whichever one isn't the hungry, hungry emperor or whatever. <laughs> but but the, the reason I don't think it is is the description that they make of Humanus, of where they have a very modern description of Humanus of the scale of its technology. They're not talking about it as being a, a, a city that's been built that has got two wells and they're really proud of that they. Oh, okay. We... So so I feel like this is very difficult. Because, um, like, we're talking about uh, time and, you know, things that have happened in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the season of the teeth uh, was fairly far into the Sanzid Empire. Sure. Okay. The- so, but, but the, um, so that's 1553 to 1566 Imperium. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what what's the name of the university? Uh, I think they I, just call it the, the university. Se- the, se- the seventh university or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think it's yeah. the seventh university. So that's... Um, do, 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 um, oh, so... Yeah, seventh <laughs> university. So approximately 3,000 years before Imperial, mm-hmm. it existed. So, mm-hmm. so Shimshena and that story was presumably around the season of the teeth it was afterward because because the season of the teeth was where they resorted to cannibalism and is it possible that they had like had in their history resorted to cannibalism before the season of the teeth i so what i understood was they resorted to cannibalism in the season of the teeth and then shimshana and misalem were afterwards and they were still hungry for that long pig all right I'm going to do a quote here from the early part of the book. Okay. Uh, the woman I mentioned, the one whose son is dead, she is not in Humanus, thankfully, or this would be a very short tale and you would not exist. Yep. That continues down. It is a peaceful place, although the cataclysm that just occurred in Humanus will send seismic ripples southward to flatten the entire region. Okay. So if this isn't an event that's, concur- that's occurring concurrently, it is a very willful red herring, given these descriptions that occur yes. early on. Yes, yes. Completely. So this could very well be alabaster. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I I think it's alabaster and antimony. I read it as that at the end of the book. I mean, just from the description of how they end up, the two of them together, with him saying, I just ended the world, he clearly did something. Yes. Um, and then the description that they offer of where... Um, that it's a, a white statue. Yes. It's almost definitely alabaster and antimony. Or... Um, I, I was just going through the scale of the disaster. Uh, now it reverberates in cataclysm. Now there's a line roughly east to west and too straight, almost neat in its manifest on naturalist, spanning the girth of the land's equator. So this is a massive open gash across the world. Well, um, but we, the all, line... like, we also have no idea how big the world is and how big the continent is in reference to the rest of the world. Like, I agree with you that it is a cataclysm, but again, like, we can make assumptions... Sure, and I am. I mean, but <laughs> but 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 this could be America, and at the equator, North and South America are like not super wide. Well, so we do yes. have a map at the beginning. Oh, we do. Yeah. The only known map of the world that we have. Yeah. Uh, yes. Which and it's it's well, it's actually not. It's so it's a continent, and like one. Well, there's some islands around the side, but there's a larger island at the Antarctic region, um, and potentially mm-hmm. there is. 
Well, I suppose there must be something happening oh, distance outside and miles. of the Okay, dam. so it's yeah. I mean, we're talking thousands of miles. Yes. Um, but this there is... has to be I think there has to be something happening outside of the bands of what we get in this map um, simply because the fault lines do not match up where if you were just going to kind of wrap it around well yeah, it dep- I guess it depends on what uh, what axis you wrap it around on um, I'm guessing the rift is where yes I think so that white yep the white fault line yep yeah, it's probably a good guess. And also, I have to point out that, like, all of the cities that we have talked about and, like, the traveling that we have talked about in previous episodes, much closer in the world than I thought they were happening. Well, when you yeah, say we... much closer, like, Aaliyah is a thousand miles away. Yeah, so I guess, like, distance-wise, not much closer, but just, like, in terms of in terms of the geography that we get in the world, um, yeah. felt different than this map represents. Yeah. But Is partially it? because I've never heard of the Mare's Desert before. And, like, what yeah. what repercussions that might have on the narrative. Hmm. Yeah. This map is like, I haven't looked at this map since the first like, five minutes I read this book. It is fun to look at. Well, again, I am suffering from, from that uh, <laughs> I told somewhat you. terminal case of, of listening to the Listeners, book. Listeners, friends don't let friends listen to audiobooks. We're seeing the problems with that right now. Yeah, I, they're... De- but, Benefits and problems to it. Um. <laughs> All right, I, I I got a couple. I mean, yeah, where are we going? There's a lot now? of fun. Yeah. I mean, if, I mean, if we want to debate the morality of Alabaster's actions, we can be here all well, week. Well, yeah, so let's I think not we do as, that. Yeah, we we can just skip that one. Uh, do we think there are stone eaters in all of the obelisks? Do we think it is essentially the magic or the nature of the stone eaters that powers these obelisks? Uh, I don't think it powers the obelisks, but I think it's like uh, an assignment. Okay, Sarah, yeah, that's definitely possible. Yeah, I think they're con- connected to them. Um, maybe it's an assignment. Like I don't, I don't know. I think there there is a relationship there, very clearly. Um, but I still don't like the the obelisks for me are still sort of a black hole as they were. <laughs> Let's put that on the list of willfully opaque things, because that's a long list. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the stone eaters do seem to be related to the obelisks in some way. Yeah. And uh, follow-up question. Uh, are, is it strongly suggested over the course of this novel that the sole diet of stone eater is essentially crystallized origin? Well, that was like the last chapter. And and... And, and and we've seen similar ruby crystals being the only thing that Oa eats over the course of this so, entire story. But he I got think those it... from his geode that he hatched from. Right. Yes, and what does that say that that geode was Well, originally? yeah, that's terrifying. Oh, but... <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, ponder that question. Uh, he got oh, reborn to a new. I, I, I just had, I have a theory. Okay. Oh, good, well, of your theories, go on. Um, so, so we know how Ho was born. Well, sure, maybe. Ish. I mean, yeah. So, 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 we, we, we so, got visuals. so, so we have we have these these pieces of information that he comes out of a geode that he can eat. Mm-hmm. The the only other thing that we see them eat is is uh, origin stoniness, mm-hmm. which is very very similar to how guardians seemingly crystallize and bring apart origin. Eh? Uh, I think that was just sort of explosive, like they because it said something like they invert orogeny, and so like the power that you're it gets self-directed back to, right. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I imagine that more like a meat explosion rather than a... Ew. <laughs> thank, thank you Sorry. for that, Michelle. 
It was a really <laughs> disgusting description. Yeah, and I didn't <laughs> need reminded of it. Thanks. <laughs> okay. They, they almost just they, my my imagination was almost almost them being shaken apart of where it's almost like the the magic of bringing stillness to the world is inverted in, and they just come into pieces. But yes, yeah. like you said, um, go on. So so let's take like pieces of information that we have, and we're trying to mesh together to make sense of. Sure. There are. Essentially, loads of missing people in the fulcrum. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a big pit that obelisks come from. Yes, maybe, and, if, if Tonky's correct, yes. And stone eaters seemingly are born of obelisks. And um, maybe. Or these geode things, and can eat them. Maybe, sure. We see, we see it in the case of Hoa. Uh, what if? Oh, God. Essentially, you take a large population of origin. Yeah. Uh, and you, uh, let's say, convert them mm-hmm. in, into to uh, the pit, and they become an obelisk. And so it gives you access to massive power that is essentially, uh, let's say, concentrated origin. And and so the things that are birthed from it, and at like, which is also a stone eater that goes along with it, it can eat its surroundings and i i would guess that they could eat an obelisk because that's origin then why would we have a dead origin in well i sort of dead i guess he talks to her who the hell is yeah, right but like an incapacitated origin or i'm sorry an incapacitated stone eater in an obelisk I mean, she's she, she straight says uh, he's dead so yeah. i'm kind of fine with well, saying well, he's dead wait is it is it is it in a stone eater? Or no, is it's, it a, it's, it's. I'm sorry. It's, it's a, stone a stone eater. eater. It's a stone eater. I misspoke. Okay. I. It. It. it sure. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, Not possible. Because because that would sort of explain a a lot of things about the weirdness of or some things about the weirdness of the fulcrum and like an order of guardians and like if you essentially had to have like some. Uh, lottery-esque uh, the story um, <laughs> where you sort of n- decide to call a, a chunk of the fulcrum and create an obelisk every so often to to do something. Um, I mean, obviously that's not clear because the obelisks are fairly completely uh, a black box, but... Well, so I guess my question is, and so I was going to say did the fulcrum... So what I, what I found out like, these appendices are really, really helpful. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, so what I found out is that, so the Guardians predated the Fulcrum. Um, oh. Yeah, which I didn't know. I thought the Fulcrum was kind of founded and then the Guardians came along, but the Guardians predated the Fulcrum. Um, but I keep I keep going back to that conversation that happened, well, conversation is a little bit of a stretch, um, but that interaction that happens in Demaya's chapter Yep, when they're the at voice... the socket, right? And the voice comes mm-hmm. through and kind of what... And I should have reread that before we started um, Before we started this episode. Because, like, I think there are a couple of different ways in my, like, very sketchy remembering of what happened in that conversation that we could interpret that. And, like, my... What I remember of my impression of first reading it was that, like... Well, was that, first of all, something was kind of... Something was happening there, predating the fulcrum as we know it in this novel, right? Like something was going on that is now not any longer going on. 
I mean, yeah. we, we know that the original founder of Humanez essentially sought out this location where seemingly the socket was located. And so the socket um, was already there? Yeah, it was before Humanez was even built. Okay, so that actually goes to my original theory is too strong a word. Um, but that the socket did create the obelisks in some way, um, but that was some sort of like pre-Guardian, pre-kind of being constrained in thing that Origins were doing on their own, and it was some sort of power source for themselves. One of the things, the only thing, one of the few things we know about the damn socket, besides that really confusing, interesting chapter with the um, Guardian, that the voice coming out of them, is Tonki's little off statement at the end that she doesn't get to complete. Of Tonki says the obelisks were made there, and then says something along the lines of, and that's when everything went wrong. Right. Okay. Okay, so this is insanity. <laughs> Uh, what you got, BJ? Well, well, I'm gonna you know quickly go through what the socket says or something. Is, uh, is there a glossary entry for the no, socket? But are I you, found are you going, Okay, I found what it. So it's angry, angry and afraid. I hear both gathering, growing, the anger and the fear, readying, readying for the time of return. Okay, mm-hmm. so first of all, the guardians have some input from the sockets. The socket. Let's mm-hmm. keep in mind that Shafa brushes this all as her just being really religious and talking about Father Earth, but we're assuming that he's just full of shit, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. no, he's not. Okay. Um, Megan, sure. Okay. Uh, it did what it had to do last time. It seeped through the walls and tainted their pure creation, exploited them before they could exploit it. When the arcane connections were made, it changed those who could control it, chained them fate to fate. So that it could made be... Them oh, part sorry. Of it. I forgot that they have going. Um, it hoped for communion compromise instead the battle escalated um and then it speaks only to war now there will be no compromise next time uh and that's it i believe but i don't know i feel like it's it's, i interpreted yeah go on yeah it's weirder than i thought (laughs) and then i recalled um and i again i feel like the chaining them together and gather, you know, gathering, growing, uh, and things like that. And it did what it had to do. Um, it tainted their pure creation that, like, I don't really have any idea how to deal with. And maybe that's a third book thing. Um, but, uh, and changed those who controlled it. So, obviously, I feel like changed those, changed those who control it, that might be Guardians. But I still feel like Origins are fed into the socket and are gathered in and then that's sort of like the the and maybe the stone eaters are like part of communicating with father earth or something like that but but i still feel like there's some like weird creepy death ritual that's associated with origins in the socket and i feel like that also is kind of like why there's the emptiness in the fulcrum yeah see i don't i i did so i did that is a really interesting reading and i have to gonna have to chew on that for a while um that's my slash r slash fan theory (laughs) but and i don't i don't i don't know that i have a complete theory at all but i thought one of i guess my theory is that essentially the the obelisks were being created by by origin um as a kind of power source or like something that was kind of pre this stone lore 
kind of worldview that we very much get in this book, right? This all this all predates mm-hmm. this whole thing. Um, but that it that it is the origins who are really creating these and have the connection with them. Um, and that is why they continue to have some sort of, some of them continue to have some sort of connection with them um, that became inherently dangerous to the world and political order moving forward. Um, but that the idea of the sort of like, what was the line of the chain them fate to fate, something like that? Yeah, um, it was uh, angry and grow at the time of their turn. Uh, yeah, well, that's literally what it was. So okay. it seeped through the walls and tainted their pure creation, exploited them before they could exploit it. When the arcing connections were made, it changed those who would control it. Oh, changed, changed them, them fate okay. to fate. Cha- so it's changed with a G and then chain chained with an yes, I. Yes, <laughs> like, like the chain of command that I'm going to be. Okay. Um, okay. Because I understood... I, I do I do not have a fully fleshed out theory of kind of what is going on here, but I understand I have I have little bits of that that I that I have some sort of theory revolving around. But yeah, um, the sort of so uh, the next sentence that yeah. it says it's it made them part of it. Okay, so and that's I, why anyway I understood the chained them fate to fate to be mm-hmm. the um, origins and the guardian. Okay. Um, and then the sort of like that next line made them a part of it was the sort of guardians being pulled into this whole whatever this is. Um, and I don't know, I would have to go back and kind of extrapolate out from that to build some sort of theory. But like that is that sort of chained them fate to fate is the most concrete and then evocative part of this weird sort of prophecy we're in. Um, because I think we do have a couple of different ways that that could go. It could be guardians and origins it could be origins and obelisk um mm-hmm. it could be obelisks and stone eaters origins and stone eaters like we have yep. we have a number of pairings that happen in this book that like it's not clear to me what is actually being paired here yeah actually now that you say stone eaters i wonder if you know this at some point like the stone eaters and the origins weren't like as connected and maybe didn't I still oh, yeah. like I'm gonna harp on this like origin sacrifice to make yeah. stone eaters. Or <laughs> I don't know like about that, that but, but <laughs> that's just two two questions I think that are relevant in terms of debating which of these is possibly more accurate than something else. Uh, do we think this is Earth? So some sort of apocalyptic version of Earth, or like do we think this is science fiction or fantasy? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's essentially it's that's that that is the question that I'm asking. Okay. Because there's a lot, there's a lot of things here we could write off as being just, you know, a weird apocalyptic future Earth, and then there's a lot of things that are not in any way natural, nor would seemingly naturally develop. So, origins and stone eaters, of course, being first and foremost. Yeah. So I, I will say, and I'm, I, I am certainly open to arguments in the other direction, but I never read this as Earth, and I, I feel like BJ, you read this as a sort of future version of Earth. Um, I did. Um, but. I feel like that's uh, maybe a trap that Jemison wants to set, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess the the Father Earth and things like that. Be, um, there are authors that refer to Earth and usually will use a little e rather than a big e, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then have like a name for their world 
if they use a little e and she doesn't um and so that's that among other reasons is why i sort of thought more sci-fi than fantasy Mm -hmm. um because she's so good about using language and using language well and being careful about how she uses language for the most part um and and i guess that sort of was just like well then why would you call it earth like if you're if you're not gonna go with this fiction of it being more science fiction than fantasy then i mean there you know there are subgenres where you have like alternate reality kind of things where um you know maybe more um uh dresden files where it's just like well it's very clearly earth but has nothing to do with this one and isn't past present or future and it's very definitely fantasy Mm -hmm. um but i feel like it's far enough away that this is more like a apocalyptic past future you know something along those lines a little bit more uh star wars battlestar galactica than uh wheel of time or game of thrones yeah i mean i guess i i relate it I relate it actually to her sort of style. I I think it's a stylistic decision. um, And I relate it to her stylistic decision of using the second person, which we have talked about several times over the course Mm -hmm. of this series of podcasts. But like the, the effect of the decision to use the second person and to call to the reader as a you and kind of bring you into this really uncomfortable position um, of essentially being a character within this story is a an unset is is meant to be unsettling um that mm-hmm. like that is the point of it and so i think that like i i don't have i don't I, I guess i don't have a clear answer to whether this is meant to be some sort of other world or some sort of future earth but the fact that it is it is recognizably close to some sort of apocalyptic future that we might envision um it does that same sort of like um that unsettling um, kind of unheimlich or unhomely feeling, right? Where it's close enough that you recognize things, um, Mm -hmm. but it's far enough away that you're like, well, that doesn't seem right. Um, And so I think think that that is like objectively probably just a choice that she has made to be close enough, but not quite. It also like from a plot perspective gives her leeway to do whatever the hell she wants. Yeah. Well, the follow-up that I then make to that question is... Well, Spencer, like, yeah? d- what do you think? Yeah, you don't I get ha- to just be I the ha- Alex Trebek of the situation. <laughs> like... No, no, I was very happy with that role. I got to stimulate discussion and it didn't have to contribute at all. <laughs> yeah, but now you're being called upon. Yeah, so please, uh, I w- prepare your buzzer. I, through the diligent use of capital E, through many groundings in which tie back to our world in a way that seems purposefully connective but distant and seemingly lost through time, I worked under the assumption that this was Earth in a far removed and altered future. That that was my thought. Uh, it does not. It is some fundamental flaws that are difficult to square. I mean, the presence of stone eaters does, is not a natural thing. Uh, and how they emerged, when they emerged, is a very much unanswered question and difficult to answer from what we have. How origins developed and what role the socket played in that. I mean, this is one of the reason I wanted to do the follow-up question. And then is this, when do we think the socket is there? I mean, did you guys work on the same assumption as I did that the socket is pre-collapse, is pre-whatever started the fifth season cycles? 
Or is it something that has occurred since then as a way of trying to fix it? I thought it was... Only th- oh, sorry. I thought it was pre-collapse. I thought it was actually of the... Well, and I maybe, maybe this is not pre-collapse, but I associate the socket with whatever technology is driving um, Kestrimo under that they don't understand. I think that those are... Those technologies are on a parallel timeline. Sorry, I went muted there for a second for no good reason. Um, yeah, I, I too thought it was pre-collapse and very much tied in a similar technology as Castremo. I thought as you did, they were on parallel timelines. But it's interesting that the only thing we know that the socket is used for, the only thing that we have a character directly theorize about as to what the socket is and why it is there, is the creations of the obelisks. Mm-hmm. Um, so are we then suggesting that they too are a leftover of the pre-collapse world, despite the fact that they very clearly appear, at least in a couple cases, to have stone eaters trapped in them or powering them or however else the stone eater is in there? I thought they were. I, and I thought I, they were related to, I thought they were related to the collapse in some way. I did too, which is interesting then that that's very strongly suggesting that the stone eaters were there before this state of the world in this uh, came about, mm-hmm. which is again weird because that's not seemingly our world to imagine that stone eaters were there before, though potentially it's something that I suppose could emerge far into the future. So there's a lot to hang yourself in either direction as to whether this is Earth, just based on how fundamentally foreign it is, but still feels very much grounded in our own world and own experiences. It's a testament to qualities of a writer that. She gives us plenty of grounds in both directions, but regardless of very human connection to the story. Um, well, that's, that's, that's a few questions I had to ponder. I'm glad you guys had so much to discuss about them. They're <laughs> definitely ones that I've been I've been debating endlessly as I've been going through the story. And they really um, only provoke more questions, really. <laughs> but we as are, you said, that seems to be her thing. Yes. Um, yeah, but we are getting late in the evening. Do we have lingering we questions that we, um, like pressing questions? I think not. The only thing that I was going to add is I think there was an anime and I was kind of trying to find the the name of it and I, I'm i not sure because I had a friend that would just like show me things <laughs> um, in like freshman, sophomore year of, of, of college and, and I was just like, all right, yeah, sure, whatever. And like there, there were like essentially Saturday nights that like I would we would just like hang start hanging out at like 8 p.m. and then like go to sleep at like 10 a.m. on Sunday. So very Spencer like uh, time, you know, schedule. And I like I was just bombarded with like something completely random. Like he's like, oh, have you played this like crazy Japanese like fighting game? I was like, nope. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's cool. We should do that. And I'd be like, OK, cool. Um, anyway, and so basically there's like it's a very it's a kind of fantasy world where like there's magic and only some people have access to it but it's basically a bunch of orbiting satellites that cause like magic effects for the people that are performing magic and i feel like that colored my read of these obelisks hmm. so they're muggles oh uh, stills are muggles yes yeah okay um, but stills are muggles because they don't have access to the same technology, not for any other reason. Not um, because of uh, like magic, man. Right. Okay. Um, I, I guess the the other the one other thing that I kind of wanted to touch on, we vaguely did, which is um, and and one of the other reasons that I thought that this is Earth is because of the former presence of a moon and the necessary 
at least according to alabaster presence of the moon Mm -hmm. and so i guess the the last thing that i kind of wanted to be like uh what are your thoughts and then we can you know close out unless there's anything else that uh, you guys wanted to talk about um which is did do you accept that there was a moon and that this kind of like you know was the precipitous event that really tossed everything into chaos and then that at least some of this will be fixed by the the uh the coming of the moon um or is this just a red herring i mean it's it's one of those things if we're it if we assume that the socket is pre-collapse pre-original mm-hmm. collapse if we assume that tonki is correct that the obelisks were created in the socket if we assume that tonki is correct that something related to the socket and the creation of the obelisks is what caused everything to go wrong if we work from all of those things together and make a profound leap from them, that kind of may be read to suggest that the obelisks themselves played a role in whatever maybe happened to the moon. Um, what do y'all think of that thought? It seems fairly reasonable to me, and yeah. the only foreknowledge that I, I, is not a spoiler per se is the title of the third book is The Stone Sky. And so <laughs> I I don't, I don't know if I just want that to be like they do something about the moon and so there's a stone in the sky or it to just be like something completely different um and um i guess and then this sort of leads me and and sorry i sarah like i i want you to talk about your theories about the moon and then this leads me to (laughs) a last question that that i promise is a last question which is do you like books that satisfy what you think is going to happen in an interesting way or go sort of in in a third direction and do something else. And I guess to me, a satisfying ending to this would in some way be like bringing about a moon and this causes some sort of stabilization and they have like a new world to deal with and contend with. And that would sort of be a satisfying wrap up to like the, the chaos that, that there is. Or this is just like, something or and then there's like a what could be something completely different where the stone sky could just be like they figure out how to make all these underground geodes and they just that's how they live but but sarah i'm going to turn it over to you to your thoughts about the moon and then to the two of you a little bit more about books in general (laughs) so i have i i like actually and legitimately do not have any theories about the moon um, <laughs> fair are there sailors on the moon <laughs> i could not tell you um i would love if that was your answer on a test like that was one of the questions of the test and you just respond i have actually <laughs> legitimately no theories on this topic signed sarah done yeah me, so, so you filled out the first like quarter page of a blue book about this <laughs> you filled up a quarter of a page on a blue book yep. for your final and just turned it and in. And just turned it in. And everybody else is writing furiously, and you're just like, I'm out, guys. That's nice. I'm going to go drink at Kirkusa now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I really, I really don't. And I will even expand this out to, I've read, I don't know how much of the second book. Well, I've read the second book, and I don't remember any of it. That bodes well for the de- degree I just got. Um, but... <laughs> 
I have reread, you know, 20% of it maybe, and I still have no mm-hmm. theories on the moon. Like, I can't even extrapolate mm-hmm. out into theories on the moon itself. Um, partially because, like, th- that last line is the only time that the moon comes up, and it also does not come up really in the second book in the beginning of it. Like, it just gets dropped for a while. Um, I think it comes up later. I don't know what the moon is. Isn't a satellite a moon? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. Um, and Sarah, it... <laughs> I, I kind of imagine you going through books like uh, like a passenger on a pleasure barge or something like that, where it's just like, you're just along for the ride and you're going to enjoy it, yes. but like, you don't care where it's going. Like You assume that you're on a body of water because it's a <laughs> boat, but like the current or whether you're on an ocean or a small river, it doesn't really matter. You're just enjoying the ride. Well, and so, like, that is true, but it's true in a particular way, as as Terry slash Lee will tell you, because when we, particularly when we got together, although I've gotten better at it now because I'm not in coursework, but, like, yeah. for so long when I was in these high-level English classes and writing these papers and, like, deeply ensconced in, in all of this nonsense, mm-hmm. I didn't read for plot ever. Yeah. Um, and I could not tell you what the plot of a book was. And so Terry would ask me, oh, what's whatever you're reading about? And I'd be like, well, it's about these sort of like conflicting valences of blah, blah, blah. And there are interesting theories of whatever that intersect with it. And he's like, okay, well, how did it end? (laughs) So I just imagine (laughs) you guys having conversations about Game of Thrones. Oh God, it was the worst. (laughs) That, that, that are just, like, completely adjacent to each other. No, we're not having the same conversation at all. Yeah. And mine is a useless conversation. Like, let's be clear. Well, it's it, it's not a useless conversation. No. It's just a different... It's a different conversation. It's a different conversation. Specialist. So I'm, I'm trying to get back into plot reading now. Um, but bo- the, the con- confluence of both of those things means that I have no theories on moons. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I mean, we are hamstrung with respect to it because it is meant to be a bit of a change up there at the end just for Alabaster to just suddenly throw out, have you ever heard of a moon? I mean, before that, the only even hints that we've gotten that they were going in that direction were A, the various tectonic shit that was going on with the world that maybe you could explain was something to do with a moon. Mm-hmm. That's a leap. And then various pseudo-religious references in both that scene with the uh, Guardian and also in the little prologue statements about... Yes, yes. Yes. Okay. So, so as soon as that <laughs> prologue statement came about, I was like, "Oh, so so this is another one of the things where it was like, this is this is Earth. They they destroyed the moon, and yeah. then at the end, the end was just like, oh, oh, it was, it is the moon. They need to remake the moon. Okay. Like, uh, I, okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> just so just so and everyone knows what we're talking about. <laughs> We're talking about the little prologue entries of where they say that they killed the father's son or something along those lines, right? His, they killed yeah, his, his child. only child. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and, and this was another thing because it was only child. Yeah. And when they said that, the, like you, BJ, one of the first thoughts I had was, okay, they did something to the moon and that explains a lot. Father Earth's only child, natural, natural assumption is the moon. So I did follow that line and I did, I think I even text you guys saying, Okay, I think it's I think it's the moon they're talking about here, and then yep. at the end they went, okay, it's a moon. Uh, so I think they foreshadowed it a little bit, but it's the kind of foreshadowing of where they're just giving us little bits of poetry, and then they throw it into the end, and then there's nothing in between those. We know there was a moon, we know there isn't a moon, and we have no other clue about that other than Tonky's off statement that it's like 
I was in the if I was a son, which I apparently am, which, uh, <laughs> how have we not addressed the fact of the value and the intent behind the second person in this story at some point? Um, if Tonky said that to me, I'm like, okay, well, Alabaster can wait because what the fuck did you just say? Because that sounds important, and let's go into that for a minute. But she's got other things to focus on, and we never come back to it. Maybe I, I'll we'll have to find out in the second book whether she just returns to that mm. conversation line at one point or another. I think third book. Yeah. Oh God, that's a that's a long gap for an interesting topic. Well, um, yeah, and I yeah, will say, like, the, I I'm sure that we will read the rest of the books in the series at some point, um, because one of one of my questions that I wanted to talk about, but I think is probably actually better suited to the second book, is kind of like really doing a deep dive into the the stone lore that we get, um, mm-hmm. and kind of what what we're dealing with here. But um, we obviously do not have time for that tonight. Um, yes, but I, I do think that it gets actually is more applicable to the second book than the first book. Yeah, I would. I'm, I'm assuming it probably exists online, but I would love to see it just a compilation of the stone lore that we do, do, uh, presently have or get over the course of the books. Because that seems like it would just be a fun read in terms of like an exploration of myth and culture and fable tied to it. Yep. Um, and before we before we end, I want to read one last thing and also mention that I did get a spoiler and that apparently the second book follows um, Esun Cyanite's daughter. Yes, n- um, it's not... You didn't need to tell me that. It's the what first the f- chapter. Like, you're... <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's really Fine. not... It's really not a spoiler. It comes It comes very quickly. Um, and we... I mean, we knew she was alive, but we do shift perspectives. Part of the book follows Nasun, which is Esun's daughter. Um, but then we also do stay with Esun. Um, and so the, the quote that I'm going to say is from Tablet 2, The Incomplete Truth, verse 7. The stone eater, eater is folly made flesh. Learn the lesson of its creation and beware its gifts. Uh, uh, tie that to the socket, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so sort of all those things. So again, many questions. Um, I'm not... We'll have to figure out if we actually want to continue reading these with the podcast or that'll be sort of extras as we finish discussing um, the Broken Earth trilogy. Um, but um, but we do have planned things that we're reading next. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the book that hopefully everybody um, has started reading or, you know, will start reading soon <laughs> is The Likeness by Tana mm-hmm. French. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, um, the short story that we are actually doing next is the... Welcome um, to your authentic Indian experience, yes. TM. Thank you for saying the title, because I was just about to say, oh, it's something with an Indian in it. Uh, <laughs> well, so that's great, Spencer. You. Um, <laughs> so episode 25 of LeVar Burton Reads. Yes. Um, which we have all committed to supposedly yes. listening to the audiobook, and maybe... We should all at least skim it as well, because otherwise we're going to be really confused about some things, and maybe there are diagrams <laughs> and maps that, that we should or be familiar full-on with. full-on glossaries. Huh, how about uh, that? Did, did they, when you did the audiobook, did they have a section in the audiobook of where they just read the glossary? I don't think so, but I also, I think it's like, and this has been a presentation from, you know, whatever, audio book thing and i was like all right well i guess i'm done this but done, i can yeah. definitely like check that and you know the next time we we get together for our podcast i can either before or after uh go over that yeah give us a little okay. update yes huh? uh i can do that so all right, be sure. 
Take us out. Um, so yes, uh, we have those two things that we're going to do next. So we'll likely spend an episode on uh, official uh, experience and uh, a couple of a handful of episodes on the likeness. Um, I was paraphrasing. The- Sorry. Um, <laughs> and then, um, if you want to find any of our content, and that includes uh, past and previous episodes of our now concluded uh, podcast, GOT Got Questions. Um, uh, supposedly, uh, that might be reprised, but maybe now that the NBA season's over, I have no idea. Mangum Hoops with uh, Lee and Levi. Um, there is Whiskey on the Weekends with myself, Spencer, Lee, and Levi, where we uh, drink uh, all the same whiskey and chat about various things. Um, we should have a couple of episodes coming out over the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to, we are scheduled to do uh, another episode in about two weeks. Um, mm-hmm. And then Mangum Laughs, which uh, will definitely be making a return because I'm going to force Lee to watch the stand-up that he suggested, which I thoroughly did not enjoy. Um, so we can talk about it and I can complain at him. Um, and then we su- might, and sounds like, have an upcoming podcast discussing uh, Chernobyl and the series on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as another uh, handful of other TV shows and other possibilities that may or may not uh, come out in the future. But you can find all of that um, and maybe other extras and everything like that on mangumtalks.com. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, there is a button on the upper right-hand corner that says Contact Us, and we read every one of your, uh, or I and Lee do, because Spencer doesn't like technology, read every one of your comments, questions, and everything else. Um, and you can find all of our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and I think with that, it is even late on the West Coast, Best Coast, so I think I'm going to bid you guys a good evening. Indeed. Yeah, you too. A, a farewell, as it were. <laughs> a fond farewell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a fond well, and friendly farewell. Okay. <laughs> well, fortify yourself with the fleeting moments of sleep, BJ. <laughs> yes, in, in uh, finality. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Till next time. <laughs>